Hello and welcome to the SSP Weekly Podcast, where we dissect security and foreign policy stories from this week, and we talk about life in D.C. We are your hosts, Gareth Smythe and Miriam Pasternak. We are the directors of the Georgetown University Precision Guided Podcast. And we are very excited that you tuned in today. Welcome. We're launching something very exciting today, Gareth. Indeed. Can you explain to the listeners what it is we're doing right now? I would love to. Well, longtime listeners of the Precision Guided Podcast know that in the past, our episodes have mostly focused on conversations with one scholar leading their field of expertise and describing a situation, whether it be related to security, foreign affairs, or history, that are driving the national security conversation. But now. But now, (laughs) this new format will allow us to tap into the existing student scholarship at the Georgetown Security Studies Review to help us all understand from a student's perspective what is driving the security stories of the week. We're on. We're on. We're live. Okay, so Gareth, first of all, I, am. Um, I need to show you something. Oh, please. For this episode, because uh, I've been working on a jingle. You've been working on a jingle? <laughs> yes. And um, I want you to listen to it, and I just want you to be honest with me. Okay, let's do it. So it is, of course, a remix of uh, the already existing jingle. A remix? Yes, because this is a weekly, this is a new series. This is your European club scene coming to life. (laughs) (laughs) So here it is. Okay. Whoa. That is, that is, that's too funky fresh for me. That's a good intro for you. I actually love that. Really? I actually love that. You, you were doing that while I was reading my force planning homework. (laughs) So Correct. which of us is Correct. smarter today? I was, you. <laughs> I was I was extremely optimistic. I looked at that violin piece and I was like, there is definitely There's a remake. Something there. there is something you can do with that. For our listeners, uh, this is the this is the current jingle. It is a work in progress. Exactly. But um, if anybody um, has any comments, please write us. We would love your input for for the jingle. <laughs> I mean, yeah, if you could fix it. <laughs> If you could add some more drums, please let us know. (laughs) Okay. All right. So a new jingle and a new series. Fantastic. That is what we're doing. What a productive semester. Right. Um, We have two stories today, Gary. We do. Um, One about the government shutdown. Yes. uh, Because today is Friday the 29th of September, which means what? It means it's soon to be the end of the fiscal year. Yes. End of the federal fiscal year, which is uh, Saturday. Exactly. And so everything has to be planned before the start of the new fiscal year, right? In theory. Yes. And then I have a story to you guys about Poland and Ukraine. Oh, interesting. In, because in last, last week, as you know, Poland halted their military aid or, or the transfer of weapons yeah. to Ukraine. So we have some good stuff in store today. And I do think that the two stories might be linked. I guess we'll find out. Huh, interesting. Um, because the end of the fiscal year and the budget... Of course, comes down to the government's priorities, right? And yeah. what they want to focus on. True. But do you want to start off with the government shutdown news? Definitely. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So 
As many of our listeners have undoubtedly seen, uh, I think I've received like 25 Apple News alerts about this uh, story over the past week. Uh, there, we are careening towards a, uh, a shutdown because of the inability of the Congress to pass an appropriations bill across the different appropriations types to fund the government. What's interesting about this shutdown is that the leading disagreement is actually the defense appropriations bill, which is normally a very bipartisan um, situation Mm -hmm. concept. And uh, what's interesting is that you you spoke to Ukraine and kind of the linking of the two stories between the defense budget and and what's happening with with Poland and Ukraine. It's a dispute over funding like aid to Ukraine that is leading some of the disagreement within the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. Exactly. Like, break that down for me, because I don't, I think I've understood, like, the gist of it, but yeah. I don't understand who is arguing with whom. Yeah. Well, that that's a very good question. So, you on one side, you have kind of Kevin McCarthy, right, Speaker of the House, mm-hmm. from uh, hails from the greatest state of our union, California. Um, <laughs> I was wondering how many minutes it would take for you to, <laughs> to drop that. And well, it was I'm actually three. proud of my discipline. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and so, you know, kind of Kevin McCarthy made this deal with the Biden administration yeah. back um, earlier in the year, uh, which capped defense spending at a certain level for this fiscal year, but also for the next fiscal years, right? right? It would only be able to grow 1% of the FY23 amount for defense spending. Uh, but now, uh, some within his own caucus, particularly what's known as the House Freedom Caucus, which is some of the most conservative members of the Republican Party, mm-hmm are saying that the speaker reneged on the deal that was made with the Biden administration, uh, particularly around uh, spending levels for things like Ukraine. And they are trying to uh, force him to make cuts and kind of using the shutdown as some political pressure, some turning up point for uh, to, to force his hand. Interestingly enough, you have a, a Senate, right? So you have the House and the Senate. You have a Senate who across the political parties seems to be fairly united and what they see as a necessity for a particular level of defense spending. They actually want to uh, pass, in addition to the defense appropriations bill, they want to pass what's known as a supplemental, mm-hmm. which on top of the appropriations bill adds funding for things like Ukraine. And the Senate number is something like $24 billion just for Ukraine alone. The supplemental would also include things like aid funding for um, Hawaii right after the mm-hmm. fire in Maui. And so what's interesting is trying to watch Kevin McCarthy triangulate among all of these different um, constituencies within his caucus to try to force a deal. What remains to be seen is what the uh, House Democrats decide to do, right? Because they can throw their significant weight yeah. um, you know, behind one of the funding proposals either to support the speaker mm-hmm. or, to, uh, or to make other decisions that prolong the issue. But I think you know, what's really interesting for those of us that apply these domestic political stories to a kind of national security defense lens uh, is the implications of a shutdown for our national security and Mm -hmm. for the Department of Defense. So I actually had the chance to sit down with Christian Trotty, who is the associate editor for defense at the Georgetown Security Studies Review, to kind of understand a little bit more fully what the implications of either a government shutdown or what's known as a continuing resolution would mean for Uh, for our national security and and for our defense. Interesting. Let's hear it. Awesome. (laughs) 
Christian Trotty, thank you so much for giving some of your time for the Precision Guided Podcast. Thanks, Gareth. It's great to be here. So, Christian, you are the Associate Editor of Defense for the Georgetown Security Studies Review. You have the perfect expertise to help our listeners think through this big topic for defense that's been in the news. And mm-hmm. this is the topic of the government shutdown that is either impending or will or might have happened by the time folks listen to this episode. So you've done some analysis of the situation, and I think you have some conclusions on potential effects for our listeners. Is that right? That's right. So walk us through what you're thinking. So in my mind, uh, the the through line of this, the the most important part is that the shutdown or any stopgap measures to prevent the shutdown, like a continuing resolution or CR, is a, a, a vulnerability. It's a period of vulnerability mm. for the United States, uh, both in the short term and the long term. It threatens our ability to defend ourselves, defend our allies, uh, and to be the world power that we are accustomed to being. So talk to us about those the elements of that vulnerability as you see it. Sure. I think, number one, it's really important to start with the human costs. Interesting. I think too often we you know think about like the bigger picture issues about you know defending ourselves and but these are humans lives you know mm. real people's lives at stake uh, their livelihoods are being affected by a government shutdown so we're talking about troops their their military pay is 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 threatened their medical care child care etc that all is affected by the shutdown and now while the troops continue working through uh, a government shutdown it also it affects more the DOD civilians mm. um, who are actually furloughed you know the ones who are not working on what is considered to be essential um, military operations and activities, right. they are furloughed until the government resumes work. They are not paid. Only sometimes they, do they get back pay if that's worked out in a political agreement. Mm-hmm. Um, so their their livelihoods are, are really affected here. But I think also beyond just the tangible uh, costs, uh, it has a big effect on morale. The quality you know, of our troops, of our civilians, is a key competitive advantage over those of our adversaries. Yeah. Not having that morale is a critical vulnerability yeah. where our soldiers, because they have to worry about these facts related to their livelihoods, right. not bringing their best selves to work. And I yeah. think that's something that sometimes gets lost in the debate about these issues. Yeah. Well, and it seems to me, too, that if you are considering you know, re-upping your commission or re-upping being in the military having to navigate these periods of instability or uncertainty is a readiness issue, right? You might yes. not re-up, you might not resign if you can anticipate future periods where you have this uncertainty too. So it becomes a long-term readiness issue as well. Already they have to, you know, if you're uh, serving in the military, you have to deal with deployments yeah. and, you know, whether or not your family can come along with you, yeah. etc. This is just another factor of instability driven from the political realm uh, where, you know, unfortunately, our military service members and our, our DOD civilians are kind of taken hostage by this process. Yeah. So good. So so the first implication that we see is, is people. Mm-hmm. What's the second implication from a potential shutdown? The second implication relates to our ability to degrade our adversaries' capabilities, which right now is, is happening in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, security cooperation and security assistance, or our ability to send both weapons and services uh, to our allies and partners, is put at risk under either a full government shutdown or a stopgap measure like a continuing resolution. Basically, during such a, a government shutdown, only the most essential military operations you know, are continued. So what that means is that much of the aid that is currently helping and, and you know, underlying the Ukrainian war effort against Russia right now would probably be curtailed in a period of, mm-hmm. a, of a government shutdown or continuing resolution. What, what does this mean? Well, this is a critical period 
for Ukraine. Yeah. Their counteroffensive is continuing. They're trying to achieve a breakthrough. And so some of the more sophisticated platforms that the United States is preparing uh, and sending to Ukraine would be threatened by this. I think what's, what's important here is that Putin is, is banking on, on, he knows that militarily uh, it's going to be very difficult for Russia to win this war. So his hope is that the West would draw support yeah. for the war effort yeah. politically. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, many are looking at um, the 2024 election in the U.S. Mm-hmm. As, the, as an opportunity for that to happen. But I think what many, you know, people now are not appreciating is that the moment is now. Yeah. Politics mm. are impeding, you know, our, our ability to uh, send support to Ukraine. And if this government shutdown happens or if there's a continuing resolution that doesn't provide for all of the capabilities that, that the administration is planning to send, that timetable is earlier than 2024. It's mm. right now. Implication one was people. Mm-hmm. Implication two is the strategic calculus of our partners and our adversaries. What about number three? Yes. So I think the first two you can consider as more short-term to medium-term mm. vulnerabilities. This third factor that I'm about to talk about is much more about the long-term uh, vulnerabilities. This is specifically continuing resolutions as they relate to DOD budget flexibility. When we are in these periods of flux, uh, we have even less budget flexibility than yeah. our system currently provides for. Right. So I'd like to um, cite the uh, PPB Commission's interim report and, and quote them here because I think they do a really good job at explaining why these stopgap measures called continuing resolutions are actually detrimental. So uh, to quote them, uh, their, their interim report, the increasing frequency and length of CRs, or continuing resolutions, distorts spending rates by crowding the obligation and execution of funds into the later parts of a fiscal year, shortening timelines for contract actions and delaying new start programs, contributing to less than optimal spending patterns and higher costs to the department. I think that's really important because Mm. instead of having the entire fiscal year to execute um, these agreements to fund uh, products, when a continuing resolution happens, it eats into the beginning of the fiscal year. And it means that during that continuing resolution, you can only do the most essential or important military tasks, you cannot, uh, while you can continue, uh, unlike the shutdown, the continuing resolution allows you to continue funding for existing programs. But in this technological landscape where we're constantly trying to start new programs uh, and invest in new technologies, you can't um, do a quote unquote new start in a continuing resolution. You need to wait until they actually agree to a longer term budget. Um, So what that means is that these new starts all occur in the later half of the fiscal year. It's tougher to commit money to some of these uh, companies and it's tougher to to renew contracts, start new contracts, etc., which is a serious problem, especially for industry. It's it's intuitive for folks to understand that a shutdown or a continuing resolution impacts the DOD's ability to spend money on critical functions. Yes. What you're saying is that even the presence of a CR or a shutdown impacts the predictability of future money and the way that you implement future money, and that's the long-term effect that you're describing. Exactly. You know, it wasn't so much a problem when the majority of technology was coming from, you know, government labs like mm. DARPA, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But now that, you know, the leading edge of technology is coming from the private sector, mm. um, it is impacting our ability to move money around to respond to these technological advancements, integrate them at the speed of relevance, right? Get them into the force and, and deploy them at a time we want. This is a particularly hard hit for the kind of smaller tech companies that are the target of our uh, DOD innovation reform efforts. We're trying to get these smaller companies in so that they are delivering solutions to our warfighters to deploy in the field. And 
they don't have the overhead to survive this kind of budget inflexibility and budget instability. They, you know, they have to go through a period where they're not getting funded by DOD. These contractors don't get back pay. Mm. If their company doesn't have the overhead to support them in this time, they'll either go have to lay off some of their employees and or in the long term, they will just start shifting away from the DOD market. They'll either decide if they have both civilian and government markets for their products, they'll either start shifting more to the uh, civil market and uh, therefore not really orienting their products towards DOD and what DOD's requirements call for. If their business model was dependent on uh, the market interest from uh, DOD, they're just going to go out of business because they can't survive these periods of instability. All of this is really great analysis, Christian, and it makes me even um, more concerned about the potential impact of a shutdown or a CR to, to our national security. In sum, you, your, your equation, your formula is government shutdown slash CR equals impact to people plus impact to uh, allies, partners, and adversaries, plus impact to the long-term innovation aspects of the way that DOD does its budgeting. That's that's precisely correct. I think, you know, there are a lot of short-term and long-term implications of both this particular shutdown, yeah. um, especially as it comes relates to, to the Ukrainian struggle, but also uh, the fact that these shutdowns are becoming more and more uh, likely and to happen. Uh, they seem to be a political tool that's being used much more than in the past. And as a result, it means that there these periods of vulnerability, they won't just last now. They're going to be more likely in the future and that our adversaries might take advantage of them in the future to really outpace us technologically and to try to advance their revisionist interests at periods when the U.S. doesn't have its house in order. That was fascinating. Christian is, as usual, an expert on this. Christian, uh, we got to do a whole series with Christian. We really do. And it'll be called Christian Explains to Us. (laughs) And it'll just be him, his analysis, which I really value. Um, So, I mean, you know, as Christian indicated, there are implications for the short, medium, and long term for either a complete shutdown of the government or for a continuing resolution, right? Neither of these scenarios are good for the Department of Defense, for our people in uniform or for kind of the overall security apparatus of of the country. And so I really appreciated his perspective on, you know, it's not just that a shutdown is bad, a continuing resolution is bad, and not just, you know, until they fund the government. It's bad as a series of trends Mm -hmm. that have kind of taken away regular order when it comes to the defense appropriations process. So anyway, fascinating conversation with Christian. Mm -hmm. And that's actually a great segue to your piece. We had... uh, Ukrainian uh, President Zelensky of course. Uh, here in Washington uh, doing some high-level meetings on Capitol Hill uh, and also in the White House. And I think that's a great transition to, to the story that you have for me. It is. It is. I, of course, um, have to talk about the Zelenskys because mm. we were blessed not only with Zelensky here in D.C. last week, but also with his uh, lovely wife, Elena Zelenskyya. Um, who came to visit Georgetown University, and it was a lovely event. Um, and Zelensky, of course, was busy um, with Biden at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, he did visit New York, of course, for his uh, UN visit, his second UN visit, and then he was uh, here in DC. Um, he was in New York on Tuesday, and then and then came down. I presume he flew. I don't know if he took the Amtrak like the rest of us. 
I mean, I would love if Zelensky was on the Amtrak. Yeah, that, that would, would be. be... <laughs> That's what we would do in Denmark, but I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure there was a private. You wouldn't take waiting. bikes. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's a long bike. Yeah. No, but the story is interesting because uh, the Ukraine war, or the I should say the post-invasion part of the war, because a lot of people tend to talk about the Ukraine war as if it started in 2022. True. Of course it didn't. Yes. Uh, there's been important. an ongoing war for, for eight years. But the Ukraine war post-invasion has been waged for one and a half years now, right? Jeez. And um, it seems that support for Ukraine around the world is beginning to decrease or at least there is not as much momentum as there has been so as you pointed out within within congress there's there's not that bipartisan support as there has been and and the same can be said about the neighboring countries to ukraine and mm. that's actually what i want to focus on today is the neighboring country poland because poland made or the polish uh, prime minister made some quite remarkable statements last week mm. On Wednesday night, uh, Mateusz Morawiecki, I'm hoping I pronounce, I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, who, who went out and said that they are no longer transferring weapons to Ukraine and that they want to focus on, um, on Polish defense. Mm -hmm. He explained that, um, that, that we, they have to restock their own weapons and that they can no longer um, provide uh, Ukraine with, with, as much, with as many weapons as they have. Um, Poland has supplied, among other weapon systems, uh, T-72s, Leopard tanks, armored vehicles, howitzers, all very, very expensive uh, equipment uh, since the invasion. And um, of, uh, although they haven't published a complete list, it's significant. I think there's no, there's no debating that. But why are they saying this? So first of all i should say there is a there is an election going on in poland they're going mm. there there's a general election on the 15th of october hmm. and this comes also in the middle of this grain dispute between mm. ukraine and poland right tensions between warsaw and kiev have flared in recent days following uh, poland's imposition of a ban on ukraine's grain imports and this is in a bid to protect the interests of polish farmers of course mm. So just a little bit of background. The background is that following the invasion, of course, it was more difficult for Ukraine to export its grain because of the blockade on the um, Black Sea. And therefore, the EU imposed certain bans that have now been lifted, basically resulting in a lot of Polish farmers, also Hungarian and Slovakian farmers, who are very unhappy um, with the ban, with the EU ban being lifted, therefore the countries themselves have imposed bans on Ukrainian grain, and there you have the the dispute. Now, this is the background I know, but of course I uh, I had to ask some friends, some people who know more about Polish um, domestic politics than I do. Mm. So I actually had the pleasure of uh, talking with Camille. I I thought it would be interesting to hear what he has to say about Polish domestic pol politics, especially with regard to this um, this claim about Ukraine. Fantastic. Welcome, Kamil, to SSP Weekly, to episode one. 
Well, thank you for having me, Miriam. Um, You're very welcome. Um, would you like to introduce yourself first? For sure. So my name is Kamya Lungu. I am a um, graduate student here at Georgetown University in the German-European Studies program. And a lot of my focus has been on transatlantic trade and ag and energy policy. I'm also a um, part of the Polish-American community here in the U.S., and I have done um, a decent amount of work around uh, Polish-U.S. relations as well. Um, we're very happy to have you on because I do have some questions about the recent news in, in Polish politics. So I wanted to, first of all, hear about the prime minister and his surprising news last week about halting all weapon transfers to Ukraine. Yeah, with the current news, we clearly see the Polish government taking what might seem like a very cold stance uh, towards Kiev, um, preventing military aid, um, also continuing this import ban this uh, this import ban on Ukrainian grain also um, on on Polish markets and you know the the two of them are quite interconnected um, you know I think it's really important to understand and this is the biggest thing that we need to really put into context is the current ruling government Poland peace um, and what are their stakes this year on October 15th we have an election um, the the ruling party piece, a right-wing populist party in Poland, is hoping for another third term in parliament, a third government. The biggest threat to the ruling party informing a government is not directly the opposition um, sort of civic platform run, um, which is currently led by Donald Tusk, the really famous um, um, you know Polish center-right uh, um, politician. He was prime minister about you know 15 years ago, and then also um, was a big wig in, in Brussels for yeah. the time being. But also we need to understand that there's a third political force which is rising, which is Confederacja, mm -hmm. um, the Confederation Party, which is a hodgepodge mix of far-right-wing nationalists, monarchists, and um, uh, sort of fringe libertarians. Mm -hmm. And this sort of far-right uh, coalition, which is to the right of peace, we need to very much uh, remind yeah. ourselves, is growing in, in popularity. They're polling between 13 and 12 percent in Poland. Mm -hmm. um, they have promise not to join any coalition, but the biggest issue is that there might be a spoiler candidate. Yes. There very much could be a spoiler candidate in this election. And so peace, um, a populist right-wing party, very much needs to um, make sure that whoever votes for them, their their current constituent still comes out and votes for them, mm -hmm. and also try to attract votes away from con con from people who would vote for Confederacja, the Confederation Party. Mm -hmm. In the example of the of the of the Ukraine grain situation, mm -hmm. we need to understand that even before the war. Polish grain prices were very much in a depressed state. Yeah. Um, there has been a very aggressive subsidy policy in Poland, mixing with CAP and also domestic peace uh, sort of policy regimes leading to a lot of overproduction mm -hmm. recently and comes with uh, key cereal grains. Mm -hmm. And then uh, this was putting downwards pressure onto the price of, of wheat and other types of grains in, mm -hmm. in Poland. Um, and then you had the situation in which the Russians broke the 
the grain deal, right? The Black mm. Sea grain deal. There has been a lot of uncertainty about Ukrainian grain exports. And so there was this agreement between Ukraine and the, and the EU to create these solidarity channels yeah. for the Ukrainians um, have the opportunity to export their grain through the European Union mm-hmm. onto other world markets. Um, there, of course, was the issue about, oh, like, will these grains be, you know, do they have to pay tariffs when they hit the EU border? And for a while, they did not. Mm-hmm. The European Union decided that Ukrainian grain coming into the single market do not uh, does not need to be, um, uh, you know, charged a tariff. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the lack of a tariff led to a lot of um, grain dumping in Poland. Yeah. You can clearly see that in, in some parts of eastern Poland, grain prices actually fell by half wow. of what they were before um, you know, b- before the shipments of Ukrainian grain, um, and once again, this is uh, this is hurting the livelihoods mm-hmm. of many farmers in southern eastern Poland, um, which, in the same time, is also one of Peace's core voting blocks. Right? Yes. Is you know these farmers in east southern eastern Poland who very much depend on these subsidies have an affinity to peace for historical reasons and, um, you know, other reasons besides agriculture. But, you know, this is a very strong constituent and they really want to appease them somehow. Hence the um, the, the big hullabaloo mm-hmm. that the current government's doing in order to sort of, um, uh, you know, prevent the price of grain to depress much further in, mm-hmm. in Poland and whatnot and uh, make sure that this constituency is quite... Um, you know, um, taken care of. Yeah. The second part of the of the conversation is the weapons, right? Is sort of Poland announcing that there will be, uh, you know, halting uh, transfer of, of military aid to uh, to Ukraine, and and this is a very interesting point. Um, one is yes, this is connected to the grain deal, but also I think I'm not sure how popular is this opinion, but from my observation. This is something that would would have eventually happened. I mm-hmm. think it's important to understand that that a lot of the aid from Poland going to Ukraine is is Poland's old Soviet stock, yeah. military stock, mm-hmm. um, and this was a way for Poland not only to to get rid of it, mm-hmm. while also getting creating opportunity to modernize their own. Um, um, sort of their own uh, capacities. Mm-hmm. Um, so Poland has depleted about a third of their current capacity, sort of military capacities, yeah. giving it to Ukraine. And then the the plan was this is also a time for peace uh, to go on a spending spree. And they have they have been coming here in the U.S. having talks with major weapons manufacturers for. Um, and they're spending millions and billions and billions of dollars on, on new armaments. And that's something that is part of the peace strategy to rearm Poland with um, with Western technology. I see. So so Poland being the first country to actually send weapons to Ukraine was kind of a win-win situation yes. for Poland. Yeah. Yes. And then, of course, the, um, there's, you know, a somewhat of a, of a patronizing sense with the, with the Poles of, you know, sending sort of Soviet era mm-hmm. things yeah. that you assume that Ukrainians would be able to operate, right? That's also, you know, not a hundred, you know, not not an official line, but something that some observers have, have, have noted. And so that's why we have, you know, this dynamic of, you know, both the, the grain situation in addition to Poland's sort of military modernization and whatnot. Um, but it's also very important to note that 
the the current government, yes, they're saying they're halting, but they are still, you know, suggesting a commitment to Ukraine mm-hmm. by keeping um, sort of transport and support channels being the hub over also in the southeast of Poland being a you know a key communication and transport and supply hub. Um, and yeah, and I think that's uh, those are sort of two, the, my my two main observations in, in this sense. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the Ukrainian and Polish uh, relationship will suffer from the weapon statement, or do you think that the ties are so strong that this is a let's call it electoral maneuver rather than it is? Um, I think the current peace government. Uh, they're very much playing this short-term electoral uh, move in order to secure constituencies ahead of the election coming in the next couple of weeks. But I just do not think that they anticipated the optics of it being so, um, you know, so um, so shocking to a lot of people in the Western alliances. Domestic in Poland, you know, one can argue that there has been somewhat of um, of a level of Ukraine fatigue, and that's something that Confederacja, the party that has been, um, you know, rising in the polls, the far right wing party, has been quite successful in sort of stoking and sort of centralizing those um, um, those, those fatigues and Confederacja also. Um, you know, is quite known as the not pro-Russia party exactly, but you know the the ones who want to pull out Ukraine and end uh, aid to Ukraine and sort of end also financial aid to Ukrainian refugees and and all, all that sort. They are not the, the 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 biggest allies of 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 Ukraine in this war. I I'm pretty sure this is an electoral maneuver. I think you know if you look at the extent that polls. Um, have been um, involved in supporting Ukraine, both mili- historically military, but mm-hmm. also taking 1.4 million, you know, Ukrainian refugees. And you know, there's over there's statistics showing that the that an overwhelming percentage of Poles, regardless of you know class and background, have helped Ukrainian rec- re- refugees directly. And I think there's a lot of cultural connections between the two. Mm-hmm. So I would say that this is more of a blimp mm-hmm. than a start of a um, total uh, disintegration. That's good to hear. Thank you so much for being a guest on our podcast, Camille. Of um, course. Thank we you. hope to have you back. Of course. <laughs> thank you so much for having me. So, Miriam, I, I really I like that interview. I think that Camille had an interesting perspective. I think that, you know, for those of us that study political science, there's this trite saying that all politics is local, right? Yeah. And it becomes a phrase that is used so often as to sometimes become meaningless. But it is a critically important concept yeah. for analyzing, you know, kind of any decision making that comes out of any political body that has some sort of um, you know, responsibility to the people, uh, and so you see that manifest in Poland's actions, right? Yeah. Like this, like this critical geo, this critical geopolitical decision, right? Hiding the fact that uh, you know that that the government of Poland has a responsibility to to its people and is being responsive to a demand signal from its people. So, right. an interesting reminder about the important. Um, axiom of, of politics being local. Absolutely. And there is also the, the interesting fact, I would say, is on his way back from D.C., from here, um, Ukrainian President um, Zelensky, he actually 
he made a pit stop in Poland hmm. amidst all of this uh, on his way home. And he was trying to rebuild bridges with Poland. Now, the interesting part of that was that he was um, he was giving awards uh, to two Polish humanitarian volunteers. Hmm stressing the Polish-Ukrainian ties and not so much the ties with the government, Yeah, right? And yeah. that is also interesting. It's like he was focusing on, you know, the Polish and the Ukrainian people. Yeah. Well, and I think that, like, you've seen Poland really be the center of gravity for NATO in this conflict, right? Yeah. Like, they have been incredibly articulate about the need to continue the support for Ukraine. And I've certainly you know, as much as they're capable, put their money where their mouth is in terms of being this staging ground for these supplies and these armaments that the rest of the world, particularly the United States and Britain, are providing. It's been Poland that has been kind of the most rhetorically strong about the importance of that. And of course, proximity to the conflict mm -hmm. drives some of that threat understanding. Yeah. But I, I, um, I hope that this gets resolved as soon as possible because, you know, we really need Poland to continue to play that important role in, in, this, in this conflict. Absolutely. And then on the UN piece, it's really interesting that you linked kind of Zelensky's trip to the United States with this dispute in Poland. Mm -hmm. I actually thought that the, you know, the UN was an interesting, like this is a very interesting UN General Assembly because you had only the United States representing the, the P5 Security Council nations, yeah. right? Yeah. Like Macron wasn't there. Um, the Prime Minister of Great Britain wasn't there. Yeah. And of course, she and, and Putin, I mean, Putin has a warrant out for his arrest for, you know, war Yeah, crimes. it was the UN uh, representative who was there, right. as, as usual, yeah. And so I thought it was a really interesting split screen of, you know, kind of these these empty chairs mm -hmm. uh, at the Russian delegation and the Chinese delegation, yeah. and kind of a rousing uh, couplet of speeches from the President of the United States and the President of Ukraine. Yeah. I thought that was a very, very interesting dynamic mm -hmm. and also I think a, a good piece of um, rhetoric for for the West when it comes to this conflict between you know freedom and, and autocracy absolutely I agree with you it's gonna be very interesting to see how this all pans out and um, certainly what the Polish elections are gonna amount to we'll have to stay tuned if it's on the 15th of October absolutely it's in two weeks so um, we'll keep you posted all right I think that is it for today. Um, this was the first episode of our SSP, SSP Weekly. Um, I think it went well. I think <laughs> <laughs> if we do say so ourselves. No, I mean, you know, I, I think what's cool about this is that we, 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 we accomplished what we set out to do, which was connect the scholarship and the insights and the analysis from SSP students, whether affiliated with the GSSR, right, the Georgetown Security Studies Review, or not, yeah. to show you know, DC and the rest of the SSP community, what these students have to say and the way that they're thinking through these problems. And I, I think that that is a, that's a real benefit. Yeah. So I want to say thank you to you, Gareth. And of course, thank you to Christian mm -hmm. and to Camille. Yes, thank you, for Christian. For participating uh, today and opening up um, this brand new series. Awesome. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye.